Good morning. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Tell me if you can relate. You feel like you don't have enough motivation, enough energy, or maybe even not enough care. You're exhausted, empty, and unable to cope with daily life. I have definitely been there, and I'm guessing you probably have too, and maybe you're even feeling like this right now. And if you are, you're likely experiencing burnout. If it seems like burnout is part of our modern life, you're right. The conditions for burnout are baked into our society and in especially unique and harmful ways for women, but that doesn't mean we can't do something about it. This morning, I'm joined by Amelia Nagowski, who, along with her twin sister, is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Good morning, Amelia. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Yes. Well, you know, as soon as I saw this book, and actually, let me back up, because I didn't see it when it first came out. I'm thinking I was probably caught up in the COVID bubble, because I know your book came out kind of right before COVID-19. But a girlfriend of mine said, (laughs) Sanaa, I really think you should read this book. Um, She was like, it changed my life. And, you know, maybe in that moment, I was experiencing some burnout, and she was picking up on that. And so she recommended that I grab this book. And I am so glad that I did. Um, So just thank you so much for writing this book, because it's something we definitely need. Yeah, we actually wrote it for 21 year old me. It was the book that I needed when I was 21 back in 1990, whatever it was. Um, Yeah, so it was, it was clearly a book that needed to exist in the world, even if only for one person. Um, Mm -hmm. But that gesture of care from your friend to notice that you were, you know, kind of at your wits end and needed some kind of support, just the fact that she noticed, even if it wasn't, you know, my book that she recommended, although thank you very much for that, (laughs) (laughs) um, just the idea that she offered you a gesture of support in that moment of need, that, that actually, spoiler alert, that's the cure for burnout, that kind of attentiveness to each other and willingness to give and accept help. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. That connection that you talk a lot about in the book. And it is such a gift to have people in our lives who, again, are being attentive and who can offer like that moment of I see you. And then it's also, you know, just the icing on the cake when they can say, hey, here's a strategy that you might find helpful. And your book is full of strategies, which I love because as a sociologist, you know, we're really big on diagnosing problems, but we're kind of short on (laughs) solutions. And so your book is the best of both worlds. It breaks down what burnout is, what is causing burnout, and what we can do about it. Some of the things that are within our control immediately, and then some are more longer term solutions. So I'm guessing that all of my listeners have experienced burnout, but let's put a little bit more language on top of that. Could you describe what burnout is and how we even came to this concept of burnout? Yeah, I'll start where we started with the book, which is with the research. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1970s, burnout was first 
identified as a condition given its name in the way that we use it now by a um, social psychologist or psych psychologist, hold on, by a research psychologist, that's what I meant to say. Uh, it was first defined by a research psychologist named Herbert Freudenberger. Uh, in the 1970s, he was hired to study ground traffic controllers, um, mm -hmm. air traffic controllers, because in the 70s there was a crisis and air traffic controllers were burning out at this incredible rate. And so he determined that there were three characteristics that defined burnout. And they were a decreased sense of accomplishment, mm -hmm. uh, this feeling of emotional exhaustion, mm -hmm. and a feeling that uh, what, you does, what you do doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and these three characteristics over time, it's, you know, it's been 40 years since that original research. And over the past 40 years, it's been sort of narrowed down where emotional exhaustion is the primary characteristic of burnout in women, where decreased sense of accomplishment is the primary characteristic generally in men. And I'm so sorry that there just is no research that doesn't treat the gender as a binary. Mm -hmm. um, it just, there is no research on that to determine it, but um, you know, using the broad strokes that we use. Mm -hmm. That's what the research has demonstrated so far. Um, so for women, especially, which, you know, the book was written for me and I was a, you know, female presenting person back in the 90s. So I was treated like a female person. Um, and I needed to be aware of the ways that um, the external stressors due particularly to the way misogyny was showing up in my life was actually turning out to be a thing that was going to be so destructive and mm. end up putting me in the hospital. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when I think about burnout and thank you so much for putting that language to it, because I'm sure we've all experienced it, right? We know that feeling of like, I can't do anything. I feel like nothing matters. Um, you know, again, just that lack of motivation, but understanding that it is a shared condition, I think in itself alleviates um, some of the stress we feel or some of the hopelessness that we feel that, you know, millions of people are feeling this, particularly women are feeling this in very acute ways. And it has to do that this, with the society that we're living in. Um, for me, that already is like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit of weight lifted off my shoulders because I, I haven't made it about me and something wrong with me. Right. So I'm getting out from under that shame. Yeah, that's one of the major points we make in the book. I think it's right in the introduction that mm -hmm. the reason people experience burnout is not because they have failed to manage their own stress. Like it's not because they didn't try hard enough. Mm -hmm. We're all trying all the time to be everything we can be for our families, for our employers, for our community. Um, and it's all of that trying so hard uh, runs us out of energy. And it's not our fault that that happened. These are the demands that have been placed upon us. And we're trying so hard. And that that um, that doesn't mean that trying harder or working harder is going to be the solution. It's <laughs> kind of the opposite. It's all that trying to do and be everything the world expects. Mm -hmm. uh, that that brings about burnout because there's this unmeetable goal and unceasing expectations for what mm -hmm. it is to exist as a woman in the world. Um, and so trying harder, not, not the cure, but that, mm -hmm. that point of like connection between sociological forces, large scale, you know, oppressive systems, mm -hmm. um, connecting those, you know, diagnoses of the problems of society to 
individual well-being was exactly what we needed to do in the book it's a thing that i couldn't find anywhere else i hadn't mm -hmm. found anybody talking about specifically making the connection between large-scale oppressive forces and individual well-being that's that's what we needed to do Mm -hmm, absolutely. And and with that, what I really appreciated about the book is that you also called out really the this whole wellness industry, the idea that wellness in itself is a goal. So we should be trying harder at wellness. And as you mentioned, right in the opening of the book, you know, the problem is the world has turned wellness into yet another goal everyone should strive for. So again, that striving, that trying, but that it's only available to a select few of very privileged people. Um, mm -hmm. And so you say right in the beginning, we'll figure out what wellness can look like in your actual real life. And then we'll confront the barriers that stand between you and your own well-being. And that in itself, I love that you all laid out this outline of where we're headed in this book so that you're not, again, just saying like, oh, power of positive thinking. <laughs> you know, we're going to think our way into, yeah. you know, out of burnout, but also acknowledging that there are real structural barriers that are, again, those forces acting upon our life. So I love that you incorporated, you know, the reality that we live in and not just like, hey, we're going to think positive thoughts and, and light candles and, and do yoga. Right. I mean, if those things worked, we'd all be well already, right? Because we, we, we already know that sleep is good for us. Physical activity is mostly good for us. You know, connecting with other people is good for us. Creative self, we all know already. Like, you don't have to buy my book to learn that these things are good for you. Like, we might talk a little more specifically about why than you've explored in the past, which might be helpful, or mm -hmm. discovering, you know, which thing accomplishes what those things are supposed to accomplish that are most effective in your life. That, that might be helpful. But the fact is that we already know a lot of those resources are are healthy uh and the question is why aren't we already doing them uh, and the answer we lay out on the book we call it human giver syndrome it's a it's an idea we adapted from a book of moral philosophy actually which sounds so terrible and boring but it's you know it's a contemporary book of moral philosophy um by a philosopher named kate mann and in her book she posits a world where there are two kinds of people human beings who have a moral obligation to be their humanity to live mm -hmm. it to express it to acquire whatever resources are necessary in order to be their humanity and on the other hand are the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their mm. humanity their time their lives their bodies to the human being so that they can be their humanity and remembering that this is a book called down girl the logic of misogyny guess which group she thinks that the women are the beings mm. or the givers that's right the givers yeah nobody yeah. has ever questioned that but of course this isn't just about gender dynamics it's about dynamics of power mm -hmm. so this happens across all the intersections it's not just like all women and all men we all know men who are givers i'm married mm -hmm. to one um <laughs> emily's married to another one so we know that they exist and goodness knows that we all know like the stereotypical white lady situation mm -hmm. where she feels like she's entitled to other things usually when she's surrounded by people of color or mm -hmm. people who are not able-bodied you know like the, or people who don't speak english as a first language um anything that puts you in a position of power might put you in the position of sensing yourself to be a being entitled to the to the everything that mm -hmm. belongs to those around you um so we all stand at an intersection of, of giver and being and uh 
the solution is not for everyone to be a being, right? Mm -hmm. If we made a world where everyone was entitled to everything else that everyone else has, um, that would be a lot like the world we live in now, except maybe <laughs> even more so. Um, but if everybody felt like a giver, like they had a moral obligation to give to the mm -hmm. people around them. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I want to be a giver. That comes naturally to me. And that is, I think, the default human condition is we want to give and care and share with our community, with our families mm -hmm. and our loved ones and our friends. Um, but, and if the whole world was full of that, then any giver who comes close to giving until they have nothing left, there'll be another giver standing right next to them saying, yeah. you, you've already given enough. Take a break. Stand back. Um, you know, go have a nap. I'll bring you a glass of wine. Uh, no one would ever slip through the cracks if we were all mm -hmm. equally feeling of our moral obligation to care. Mm -hmm. Yes. But thank you so much for bringing up kind of the crux of the argument of your book is this human giver syndrome, right? So there's one thing in being um, the givers, which I agree with you. I think at our core, we want to show up for people. We want to give, right? We have that connection, that need for connection. Um, but as you articulate now and you all lay out in the book, the human giver syndrome takes that giving to a different level where there are expectations of giving until you have nothing left and giving in a certain way. And if you want anything or need anything that you're doing it wrong. And exactly. so that, yes, that is where the trouble comes in because as you noted, particularly for women in, um, you know, the patriarchal society uh, that we live in, we are the ones who are constructed as these human givers who must give, 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 and have, you know, no needs or no desires of our own. And as you talked about, when we think about burnout, that emotional exhaustion, particularly harmful for women, um, caring too much for too long. And so now we're experiencing burnout. We're experiencing that emotional exhaustion. And you talk about, you know, what that exhaustion looks like when we get stuck in an emotion, right? Getting stuck and not being able to move through the ways that we feel in very normal and healthy ways. Exactly. Um, we define wellness in the book as not a state of being. Wellness is not a state of mind. It's not a static state. Wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all of the cycles of being human. So that includes you know, oscillating from being a giver to someone who accepts help from other people. And if mm. you're stuck in a state of always giving until you have nothing left and you never have the freedom or the permission or feel like you deserve to accept help and resources from others, then you will be stuck and that's how you get in burnout. Same thing goes with wakefulness and sleep. You're not supposed to be in either state all the time. You know, mm -hmm. hunger and eating, you know, you're not supposed to be in either state. You're supposed to continually oscillate so any kind of getting stuck is is the place where burnout happens and and the giving when giving becomes a syndrome that's mm. that's when you have no choice or f feel as if society has forbidden you or told you that you don't deserve a choice mm -hmm. yes and i you know I can definitely, as I was reading the book, I was like, just underlining, underlining, highlighting, like, yes. And, and remembering these moments when I felt like I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, I have nothing left to give, but also feel guilty for not having more to give, 
Mm-hmm. right? That guilt feeling. And I can distinctly remember, you know, a moment, you know, just a, a couple of years ago where that burnout became extreme, where I was like, okay, I need to, I need to figure this out because this is not sustainable, right? I cannot just give, 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 even if I want to give, even, you know, it's just, I can't do it. And for a lot of us, we feel like we have to give at work or our spouse, our kids. Um, and it feels like that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? That makes us a good person. Yeah, it even might make us feel good. The fact that we're doing it is like, oh, no, this is good. It makes me feel good. It feels right. Um, And the fact that you just noticed, you know what, this is unsustainable is fantastic. That means at least you're paying enough attention to your own experience to be aware that you are in a state that would that couldn't continue. Unfortunately, I was not doing that back. This is in like 2010, 2011, when I was in grad school, working three part-time jobs, stepmother to three teenagers. Like, you know, I was commuting 65 miles each way to campus. Like, oh, I was, my life was hell hard. <laughs> um, and I was not paying any, I just assumed that I'd be fine. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of us have that default of like, I'm strong. I've been through worse. I can do this. I can power through until mm-hmm. this particular phase is over and I can keep going until this stressor has left me alone. And then after that, I yeah. will deal with the stress. Um, but the good news is that you don't have to wait for that stressor to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as you notice, as long as you observe, oh, something's wrong with me. I ended up in the hospital because I didn't notice my body was literally (laughs) breaking itself from the inside out. Um, Hopefully most people will learn from my mistake. (laughs) Let my suffering not have been in vain. Um, (laughs) And they will be more willing to be like, oh, this thing that I feel like it's not hospital type pain. It's not emergency room pain, but maybe it's still worse than I deserve. Maybe I deserve Mm. to feel healthy and well and when i stop feeling healthy and well i should take a look at why Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's when you can start observing what stress does to your body and when you feel like it's been alleviated like is it physical activity is it sleep is it spending time with your people Mm -hmm. is it a good long like warm hug with your best friend where you just like sit there you each support your own center of gravity and just wrap your arms around each other and spend just time i mean the research says 20 seconds but like it could be 18 seconds it could be 22 seconds it could be five minutes i don't know i don't care um (laughs) but you stay there until your body will eventually recognize i am close to this person and Mm -hmm. i feel safe and when that physiological shift happens and it might happen during a bike ride it might happen you know while you're singing in a choir it might happen um in this hug but you can feel a shift and Mm -hmm. when you can discover that change and what the other side of it feels like you can go oh this i want to feel like this more often yeah Um, yeah then that gives you access to to knowing kind of a more realistic sense of where you are on your tolerance for probably way 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 too much stress 
Wow. Okay. There is so much there. We have got to dive into this a little bit deeper. Let's do so after a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm here with Amelia Nagoski, co-author of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And right before the break, you were sharing with us a moment when you were definitely experiencing burnout to the point where you had to go to the hospital. And something you said in describing that really resonated with me when you were talking about how, you know, hey, this is just a stressful time in my life. It's fine. Everything is fine. You know, the house is on, on the house is on fire, but everything is fine. right? Yeah. Um, in a few years, like I, it'll be a not stressful time and then I'll relax and then I'll, you know, do all the things. Right. And I was like, that is me. That is so me. I'm like, oh, it's just a stressful month, semester, year. Um, Mm -hmm. Next year, I'll, you know, kind of incorporate more rest or I'll do all of the things that I know are are healthy and supportive um, for my body, for my mind, for my emotions. Um, And, you know, sometimes balance does look like a little bit more here, a little bit less there. But over these lifetimes of ours, especially as women and particularly for women of color, there's this expectation that you should do more. You can endure more. What do you mean you're complaining? And once we start to internalize that, it feels terrible when we end up sick or in the hospital, right? We still are thinking like, well, why couldn't I have done this better? Yeah, I think actually the house on fire is a really great analogy. Like if we just take it literally, what happens in the moment when you're like, oh my God, the house is on fire. You panic, right? And you tap into an evolutionarily adaptive physiological state, fight or flight, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is designed to help you escape a saber-toothed tiger. And it gives you the same strength to escape from a fire. It gives you the adrenaline and the cortisol and the glucocorticoids to give you more energy, to make it easier for you to move faster, right? Your heart rate increases, your breathing increases. Um, Other things change too that you may not be consciously aware of, like Um, there's changes to your skin where your sweat glands and your oil glands become more active so that even if you don't notice it happening in the moment, the next couple of days, you might notice that you get like a breakout and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you've got pimples because you had this stressful thing happen and now you've got breakouts. That's part of the stress response. And it's how things can show up later. Mm -hmm. For example, other things that can show up later if you experience this too much are, you know, changes to your immune system. Because in the moment of getting out of the house, who cares about like malaria when the, you know, your house is on fire, you just have to escape being burned, right? You just Mm -hmm. need to keep yourself safe in that moment. And then after you escape, then you have used up all those neurotransmitters and hormones and electrical signals, and you have burned it all up and you get out and you feel safe. You have escaped, you've kept yourself alive, and you've completed the stress response cycle. Stress Mm -hmm. is a cycle that happens in your body. That's how it works. And if it were used to escape literally from a burning house, that would be great. That would be fine. It would work out just just great. But then after your house is on fire, then you have to call the insurance company. (laughs) And you have to wait on hold. And you have to call contractors to get things repaired and rebuilt. And you have to wait for months for things to get done. And then you're living in a construction zone. Or maybe you have to move and maybe it's a temperate like things get really stressful long term at that Mm. point but like our bodies are not adapted yeah to be in a state of stress in a state of fight or flight for very long 
And mm -hmm. some of the stuff that can happen, um, like the acne where things show up later, and then especially if the stress just never stops. So let's take your circulatory system. Your blood vessels are designed to manage a gently flowing stream of blood moving through accessing all the different parts of your body. Uh, in the moment of fight or flight, your blood pressure increases to like a fire hose mm. and your blood vessels can handle um, a few minutes of fire hose. That's fine. It'll cause like a little bit of damage, but assuming that you can go back to a state that like after you hug somebody's state of like, oh, calm and feeling good, then you have plenty of time for those blood vessels to repair themselves and to get better and to be ready for the next time you need the fire hose. But if you're on hold with the insurance company and they're like denying your claims and this is now a source of stress. And so the stress is activated again and it mm -hmm. might stay elevated and activated for a long, long time. And your blood vessels are not designed to do that. They need a chance to heal. When they don't get a chance to heal, those places where damage occurs in the blood vessel, that's where plaques form. Mm -hmm. And gradually that's how those plaques get loose. And this is how chronic stress can cause a heart attack. Mm -hmm. People ask me all the time if, well, can burnout, you know, kill us? Is it, yep, yeah, yep, stress yeah. <laughs> can, lead, can lead you to physiological death, not just in this like direct, immediate way of your circulatory system, um, but also through breathing problems that can, I mean, it can be any system in your body, but mm -hmm. people who also have like problems with their immune system, it could be long term activated stress response can cause that. It can also cause reproductive problems because, you know, when you have to escape from the house that's on fire, your reproductive system says, you don't need me. I take up a lot of energy, mm -hmm. so I'm going to chill out for a hot second and let you get out of this house because who cares about babies <laughs> if, you know, you're going to get stuck in this burning house. So yeah. they use that energy to escape. And luckily, you escape and then everything comes back online. Reproductive systems like, great, I'm back. <laughs> But uh, uh, if it's chronic and ongoing, your reproductive system never gets that message. Okay, all's clear. Mm -hmm. Get back into it. Um, yeah, so you've probably heard stories about people who try and try and try to have yeah. babies and then they finally adopt and, mm -hmm. the, and the pressure is off and now yeah. they get pregnant. Mm -hmm. like, genuinely, stress interferes with our physical health in ways that we may not be directly consciously aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those chronic stressors. And, you know, again, like our, our lives are so, so filled with a variety of stressors, which some do become those chronic stressors, right? We're always being exposed to a certain type of situation or we're constantly kind of stuck in that fight or flight or even those free situations as you described. I think the other important thing to know is how you say sh the stress response is a cycle. And of course the book is about unlocking, right? The stress cycle. Um, and oftentimes I think we think of stress as like, oh, we're stressed, you know, and it's over or, oh, it's just stress that we have to deal with and not acknowledging that it's a cycle that needs to be completed. And there's a specific way to complete the cycle, not just, oh, we're stressed and it's over. No, there's a little bit more that needs to happen. And so could you talk about completing that cycle, right? And this is really yeah. the crux of the book of ways to complete it um, and what that looks like. Absolutely. That's so there's a lot of ways to complete the stress response cycle. The thing to keep in mind is that the thing that causes your stress 
if it's your house on fire, then you can use the physiological experience of stress to deal with the thing that caused your stress, right? Mm -hmm. If it's just in that moment, you have used it up, great. You solve the problem and you deal with the stress in your body simultaneously. The good news is that most of the things that cause us stress are not immediate threats to our life anymore. Um, so mostly we don't need to run from saber toothed tigers, but unfortunately what that means is that our body's kind of limited options for responding to things that cause us stress means that we still experience a very similar kind of stress response, even if what's causing that stress response is, you know, receiving an email from our boss at 3 a.m. Um, we still have that, but like, there's a lot of things we can do to deal with that thing that initiated a little feeling of stress. Mm -hmm. um, but none of them is fight or flight. <laughs> you cannot deal with emails from your boss by running away or by punching him in the face. <laughs> it might be her, her or they, but I'm going to say him because, you know, human giver syndrome. Um, human, yeah, human beings. Okay. Um, so in that moment when something causes you stress, you have to do whatever it takes to deal with the thing with the stressor, the thing mm -hmm. that initiated the stress response in your body. But just because you've dealt with the stressor, like for me, it was my graduate school program. Um, yeah. When I, I thought, I thought I'll be fine. After I graduate, I'll just recover and it'll be fine. But the good news is that I didn't have to wait. That mm -hmm. dealing with school required studying and being politically, you know, savvy to all of the white men who were in control of my life at that moment. Um, and dealing with the stress was a totally separate independent process mm. um so just because yeah you may have dealt okay that stressful situation is over like work was really hard today and you get home and you're like okay i'm fine now no that does not happen mm. work is stressful and you get home and you just want to yell at the first person <laughs> or pet that you see mm. right you're still carrying it around inside you so you need to deal with that physiological experience that is the stress cycle Lots of ways to do that. Physical activity, because when you're, you know, when you got to escape a burning house, what do you do? You run. When you're <laughs> yeah. escaping from a saber-toothed tiger, you run. Everyone already knows that physical activity is good for them. <laughs> um, why aren't we doing it? Well, the world is more complicated than that. My identical twin sister, Emily Nagoski, PhD, is a natural exerciser. She knows that she can go for a bike ride, go for a walk, and she comes home and she feels like the world has been lifted off her shoulders. Yes. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, yes, I, yes, whenever I exercise, I feel so much better. I thought Emily was making it up because I am not a natural <laughs> exerciser. I have never had that experience. Uh, exercise is still good for me but it just doesn't give me that sensation. So when it comes to completing a stress response cycle and helping me feel what it's like not to be mm -hmm. in a state of fight or flight, exercise is not helpful to me. Mm -hmm. But also it's more complicated because even if it is helpful for you and you know it, if you're a woman and you go for a walk and you get cat called, yeah. now this thing that was supposed to help you relieve your stress and move through your stress response has become a source of stress. Mm -hmm. um, same thing goes if you're if you're a trans person and you're going to use the gym if you use the locker room could be taking your life in your hands yeah so it's it's just not as simple as oh physical activity will manage your stress like that's yeah. not a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination 
I think in the book, there's like a dozen things that we yeah. talk about that complete the stress response cycle. I'd say the next most important one is sleep. Mm, yes. Seven to nine hours. Um, hopefully if you can discover how much sleep you need and get that much sleep and it's, I'm a nine hour sleeper. I need nine hours. Me too. Me and too. I, I always have. My sister, my identical twin sister raised in the same house with me is a seven and a half hour sleeper. She doesn't even need eight hours of sleep and she's, she's great for the day. Mm -mm. And uh, if I get seven and a half hours, I become unpleasant to be around. <laughs> and if I get seven and a half hours of sleep per night, every night for, you know, a couple of weeks, I, I, well, the science says that if you get six or fewer hours of sleep on average um, for two weeks, you will be as if you are intoxicated with a 0.1 blood alcohol content, mm -hmm. illegal to drive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, get enough sleep just to make you a safe person to be around. Because would you would you drive with a 0.1 blood alcohol content? No. Would you no. parent with a 0.1 blood alcohol content? Probably not. Would you go to work with a 0.1 blood alcohol content? It probably depends on how you feel about your job that day. No, but you definitely would not be safe to be around um, in a work situation if you did not have all of your judgment and your reflexes available to you. Um, so sleep is important just for safety, but it also can complete a stress response cycle. Your physical muscles get a chance to relax while you sleep, but your mind during REM sleep, rapid eye movement mm -hmm. sleep, which is where you dream, uh, your brain is pulling stuff out of memory and kind of reliving it a little bit. Stuff comes back from ages ago. And because your body's going to store these memories forever, right? <laughs> so you can complete a stress response cycle left over from your eighth grade bully. If mm. it comes up in your dream and you get to like relive it and practice it and kind of let go of it and move through it. And mm. that's one of the things that, I mean, we know that our dreams help us practice things. If you've yeah. ever done a skill for a long time in one day, like playing Tetris or something, and then you go to bed and you dream about that thing, <laughs> science shows you wake up and you're actually a little bit better at that thing. Um, better than if you had stayed awake and kept practicing. Mm -hmm. um, there's research that shows that students who nap instead of cramming do better on the following exams. Um, mm. So sleep is so good for you and yeah. it is important to complete the stress response cycle. Um, but unfortunately, Emily and I have lost count of the number of women who have told us they feel guilty mm. for yeah. sleeping. As if sleep is some kind of luxurious indulgence that how dare they take all of that time for themselves to sleep they could be awake helping someone else um but um that's human giver syndrome and uh i as a giver am here to say to all of you you deserve sleep you yeah. deserve access to physical activity that feels safe uh no matter who you are whatever your skin color hair color and location and texture uh mm -hmm. no matter how many kids you have or don't have no matter your gender sexuality uh, anything else you deserve sleep and physical activity and all the other things that complete the stress response cycle including love and physical connection you don't have to change you don't have to finish school you don't have to come out you don't have to stay in you don't have to have kids. You don't have to get married. You don't have to get divorced. Like no matter just wherever you are, however you are right now, you deserve sleep. I hope that you have people in your life who will um, protect your need for sleep instead of 
making you feel like you owe them so much time that you must sacrifice their sleep. Mm, yes. Ooh, that right there. Like, I think for folks, please also listen to the replay because I feel like that just what you said right there, sometimes we need to just affirm that for ourselves and for the people around us. So when this conversation um, gets archived on the show page or in podcast format, like take that little clip and replay it every single day because, wow, I'm like, it's true, but sometimes we need to hear it from somebody right. else. And that was exactly what I needed to hear. I don't know about anybody else, but wow. Thank you so much for that. Let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Amelia Nagowski, co-author of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Amelia, before the break, oh my goodness, you gave us just this amazing affirmation about our worth, our value. And you know, it's like we know, we know it's true, but there is something about hearing it, hearing it from someone else, someone that's not ourselves, particularly in a society that is putting all these unrealistic and harmful expectations on us as women. We like, may know consciously perfectly well, yes, I know I deserve sleep. I know that I'm equal in the whatever and that I am worthy. I know it intellectually, mm. but something deep down that has been saturated by, you know, the white supremacist is heteronormative rabidly exploitative late capitalist patriarchy has just turned the core of you into this sponge of doubt. Mm. <laughs> I may have gone a little too far with the sponge analogy, but there's something <laughs> inside that's still kind of tainted by all those outside messages. And mm. it is impossible to stand alone against that flood. It's, it's impossible. No individual can stand against that tide of social pressure. Um, yeah. The cure for this that we talk about in the book, we call it the bubble of love, um, but it does come from like a logical evolutionary adaptive thing. Like uh, Jonathan Haidt is a research uh, sociologist, actually research social, social psychologist. He's a social <laughs> psychologist. He describes humans as 90% chimp, 10% bee. We're a hive species. We're meant to thrive in collaboration and communities. I mean, if you think it more mechanically as we're a herd species, mm -hmm. right? We're meant to protect each other by, you know, staying in a big group. Um, the safest place to be in a herd is in the middle. Yeah. So a deep part of you that comes from those herd species uh, knows that the safest place to be is in the middle and that if you are on the fringes, it could be dangerous. Mm, and yeah. that feeling is supported by the facts in the real world. If you live on the fringes, if you are a person who belongs to a marginalized community, you genuinely are less safe in the world. If you are a person of color, especially an African-American person, you are more likely to be murdered by the police. Mm -hmm. When you live in a marginalized community, you are more likely to be injured by the system. If you are a person of color, if you are fat, if you are trans, someone who is of a non-average, non-typical body size or shape or color, you will have more difficulty accessing quality healthcare. It is literally more dangerous to your well-being to be a person who 
does not conform to this socially constructed ideal, very narrow socially mm -hmm. constructed ideal. Um, so this knowledge that, you know, deep down that you have to belong and you must get in the middle of the herd is not because you're a, you're a wimp or a joiner or like whatever derogatory term you can think to apply to someone who just needs to, to fit in with everybody else. Like that's not, that's not cause because you're, you know, a pathetic conformist, it's because your your body knows that it's safe when you belong. You are built mm -hmm. to belong to a community. The good news is you don't have to conform to the, you know, the uber cultures, white supremacist ideal. Uh, you can conform to the ideal that's set by your people, by the people who care about your well-being as much as you care about theirs. Those are the people in your bubble of love who will yeah. help counter those external messages like you spent too much time on instagram and now you're totally certain that you need to have a white kitchen in order <laughs> to be worthy of love right <laughs> no one can come to my house until my kitchen's white i'm ashamed of my my brown kitchen cabinets mm -hmm. um my aunt um had a retirement house built and they asked her what color she wanted her cabinets to be and she's like they're wood right so brown <laughs> I had to explain to her like, okay, but most people, there's this thing, you got to have a white kitchen. So right. that's where that question was coming from. Um, so uh, not all of us are aware because that was her bubble. Her bubble was like, yeah. oh, I don't feel any pressure to have the same kind of kitchen as everybody on HGTV. Um, <laughs> but if you have, if you live, you know, constantly bombarded by these messages that there's only a very narrow way that you can fit that you can yeah. belong, that you can be worthy of safety and protection, um, eh, it can be really dangerous. So you have this bubble of people around you who remind you, no, you are worthy of love just as you are. We love your kitchen just as it is. It, it keeps you fed and healthy. That's all that's required. Um, and we all feel at home there along with you. And it is a safe, comfortable place where we can connect with each other. And that's what matters. Mm -hmm. um, so this bubble protects you from the outside messages um, so that you feel like you do belong in your own herd. Not the yeah. not the white supremacist herd. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to be in that herd. No. Um, I mean, we all are, unfortunately. Like, right. we, there's literally no escaping it, but it doesn't have to be the one that we primarily relate to and compare yeah. ourselves to. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, you know, that also takes a lot of awareness and really strong connections um, because we are bombarded by this messaging every day, all day, right? That, you know, we should think a certain way, we should look a certain way. And if we're not, then as you mentioned, we, you know, lack value or we're not worthy. And so it can be a lot to every day, you know, keep in our minds that we are worthy. We're worthy just by value of being here, right? That is simply enough. And you talk a lot in the book about not just the human giver syndrome, and then of course the society and the power dynamics in which we live, but also the bikini industrial complex, which you kind of alluded to with, you know, the ideas about our bodies um, and how, you know, we're really taught particularly as women from a, a young age that our bodies should look a certain way and they should do certain things for other people, right? And we mm -hmm. become very disconnected from ourselves in our body. 
Yeah, when I was saying how great it was that you noticed that your well-being was not at its peak and that something had to change, we are explicitly trained from a very early age to trust what other people tell us about what our body needs and what kind of condition it's in. Um, a lot of us feel like the only way to measure the wellness of our bodies is by its size, literally the ratio of its weight to our height, which is the <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna swear. I was gonna. I, I, was like, like, I knew I felt it I coming like, up. I can't. I can't. I can't swear. But like in my the, the bleeping BMI, right? Um, the, is that safe enough? Um, but the the fire trucking BMI, uh, like whatever safe curse words you want to use. Um, so that like okay here okay, I'm just gonna channel a little a little piece of rage and see if people can't relate. Yeah. Did you know? that the people who created the BMI chart, it was a panel of nine people. It was literally just nine human beings. Seven of them profit directly from the weight loss industry. Mm. So they did not make this as a guide to health and well-being. They made it as propaganda to earn them money. And then the federal government adapted it as a standard. So now mm. insurance companies use it as like guidelines for what health is, as though health is measured on a scale. And it's just not. It's just not true. Um, and unfortunately, um, this is this is, as you were saying, baked into the system that we have. There's no there's no removing it without destroying the whole thing, which would yeah. be awesome let's destroy the whole thing and start it and build something better um but yeah so the bikini industrial complex is this phrase that came flying out of my mouth in the middle of a choral rehearsal i'm primarily a choral conductor i have a doctorate of musical arts in conducting right i teach singers to sing like that's my job so the thing is that when you sing you have to breathe mm -hmm. when you breathe your belly expands yeah i had this new group of um first year students straight out of high school and I'm trying to like help them breathe in order to sing this long phrase and they're all like clenching their abdominal muscles because yeah. they've been trained all their life to hold their stomach muscles in because stomachs are supposed to be flat abdomens mm. are supposed to be rock hard and like that's just a lie it's literally a lie that was invented to sell them products to help them achieve this literally unachievable goal. This goal that's not only unachievable, but would be bad for them if they took it too far, which, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. people <laughs> do, which is not their fault. It's it's not vanity to have an eating disorder, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. way more complicated than that. Yeah. And women's lives are on the line uh, and increasingly men because mm -hmm. Because these same people who profit from the weight loss industry discovered, oh my God, like there's half the market that we haven't pressured the same way that we have the other half of the market. We could make twice as much money if we tell men that they're not valuable unless they also have rock hard abs. Um, anyway, the bikini industrial complex is this kind of multi-billion dollar group of business interests who who profit off of selling you lies about what your body is supposed to be and do so mm -hmm. i tried to explain to these first year singers that like no 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 you've been lied to like your 
your body's supposed to oscillate from clenched muscles to relaxed muscles, from from contracted muscles to stretched muscles. And guess mm-hmm. what? Your abdominal muscles contract, yes, but they also stretch and expand. And look, that makes your belly look round for like a hot second. I mean, that's correct. That's good. Yeah. That's how breathing is supposed to work. It's supposed to be a fluid contraction. It is this is the physical short-term embodiment of the wellness as defined as the freedom to oscillate inhalation mm-hmm. and exhalation and contraction and expansion that that's that's it and um yeah so i tried to use this phrase as a way to explain to my singers the core problem of why they weren't breathing it wasn't anything wrong with their anatomies it mm-hmm. was wrong with their beliefs and their expectations that they had been taught yeah. such that if a woman is in I mean, I was like a kind of a sort of average size, Um, you know, thinner than average, actually, for an American woman. When I was hospitalized and I had been trained to believe that if my body was thin enough, then I was healthy Mm -hmm. and that I could look at myself and figure out if I was okay. And that's wrong, turns out. (laughs) Um, It turns out that you're just as likely to have, for example, um, cardiac disease whether you are a size that the BMI chart approves of or larger than that, it's, it's equally likely. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like have, having more fat on your body does not mean you're more likely to have cardiac disease. That's just, that's just not true. But yeah. doctors believe it is and will tell you that it is. I feel like I have lost some of the plot here because <laughs> I'm going off on this tangent because it makes me so mad. No, um, I am right there with you because when I read that in the book about how the BMI was created or rather who it was created by, which I've known that the BMI, like, what are we really doing here? And I, I understood that. But then to actually find out like the, the process behind it, I, when anger. I had to go through the stress response cycle in reading that and do something with that stress and those emotions that I felt to release it because I was like, wow. But it's just to the illustrating the point of so much that we have been taught and accepted about ourselves, our roles, our bodies is absolute untruth, but yet it keeps us in these specific conditions. It keeps us controlled. It keeps us, you know, it keeps us in our place as you talk a lot about in the book. And so if we don't question it, then we can believe like, I have to look a certain way. I have to behave a certain type of way. And ultimately what ends up happening is we're in the hospital, right? Or we're, Mm -hmm. we're out of touch with our body. We don't know how to breathe. Like we literally don't know how to breathe. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of when I started weightlifting and you have to breathe in a certain way (laughs) in order to lift weights. And my trainer was like, okay, you need to breathe in your belly. And I'm like, I don't. And I literally told him, I was like, I don't, I don't know how to do that because for so long, like I've been taught, like you need, right. We're shallow breathing. We don't want to expand our bodies. Um, And that actually helped me get in, of course, no surprise, get in tune with my body and do something that you talk about in the book is like redefining both how I feel about my body and ultimately my worth, because so much of our worth is tied up into our bodies um, and all these misconceptions about our bodies, but also redefining how I think about other folks' bodies and the bodies that I see around me that are completely normal, but that our society wants to say, oh, you're not thin enough or you're not this enough. And, you know, it's just really key when we're talking about 
why we feel so burned out, it is because of all of these misbeliefs and yeah. beliefs about our body being very central to that. Yeah, because the goal that society has set up literally as propaganda of the weight loss industry is an unachievable goal for almost everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't matter how thin you are, because even if you're real, real thin, just naturally, you just you never think about what you eat or how much you exercise. You're just naturally thin. Even then, the bikini industrial complex is going to tell you, well, like, you really should have more toned arms than that. Yeah. And, and I, I don't you don't even have a two pack. Like, are you not going to do any crunches? Come on now. Or your mm -hmm. ass isn't round. It's so flat or it's mm -hmm. round, but it sags too low. Like, yeah. like. Or <laughs> all of the swearing I am blocking right now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, because so it doesn't matter who you are or how closely you conform to the very narrow socially constructed ideal. No one escapes this feeling of striving and the need to mm -hmm. work more and do more and behave better in order to be that to fit in the middle of that ideal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you know, Amelia, I was thinking as I was reading your book, because I know this was written, you know, pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, even as maybe, you know, you've been thinking about the book or maybe even what's next for you, for you two, um, what do you think the pandemic showed you that maybe you would add or amend to what you all have, um, the strategies you all laid out in burnout? There's a very specific thing we talk about, um, which is gratitude for hard things. And the pandemic is a hard thing. It's a bad thing. It, it killed millions of people. I have been disabled for three years. I'm a COVID long hauler. Mm -hmm. And it has changed my life mostly to make it much, much harder. Yeah. Um, and I would not, I would not wish that to have happened at all. But if we can see some some benefit to come out of this profound tragedy, it might be that it exposed these systems so that more people could see it. Mm -hmm. I would say that none of the social systems have changed. None of the dynamics have have altered in a important way. Um, rather, it is now more of us who experience the worst effects. Mm. So, you know, people who live below the poverty line, people who live on the margins for whatever other kind of intersectional reasons um, have always felt the way that middle-class white people feel now, mm -hmm. right? Now, just more people have been brought into the fold and been exposed to these systems that are so toxic and dangerous. So if, if this feeling of, of just constant burnout and suffering and impossibility to achieve what you were told you were supposed to achieve, if that's just happening to you now, welcome. Because <laughs> th this has been a common experience for so many people. And I'm so sorry that it has reached out and harmed even more people. Um, but it's not new. It's just bigger now. Mm -hmm. um, and I do hope that that means that we will all feel more concern and care for those who are really left behind mm -hmm. um, from the systems that are in place um, and make us act on our compassion 
for their experience, not just to benefit ourselves and get our, ourselves back to what we considered normal before, mm -hmm. but to understand that it's that it wasn't our fault that we ended up in this place of incredible overwhelming stress and an incapacity to achieve what we were told to expect to achieve it it was this larger scale mm, barrier mm -hmm. systemic barrier and that those systemic barriers still exist even when we don't feel them anymore they just happen to other people and um hey let's um let's let's eliminate them for everyone let's make yeah. the world a safe and just place for everybody Yes, yes. Let's do that. Well, Amelia, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today and to talk with you. I've learned so much from this conversation. And again, the book, absolutely transformational. Um, thank you so much. Thank you to you and to Emily for writing it. And thank you for being here with us this morning. Can I add in really quick that yeah. there's also just for the um, sake of accessibility, there's mm -hmm. also an audiobook version for people who find yes. reading an 80,000 word book is not going to be the thing that helps them. And we have also in January just released a workbook, workbook. version. So yeah. if you don't need all the research and all the citations, if you just want to like do the thing, just tell me how to fix it, then we have a workbook for you. That was that was a request that we had from readers. So yes. it's available now. Yeah, I look the workbook I know is awesome because even in the book, you have all of these really great kind of activities throughout, which I definitely enjoyed. So absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Amelia Nagowski, co-author of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. Whew, I don't know about you, but I feel a little less stressed, right? I feel a little bit better, even just having had that conversation. Now I know I need to get out and move my body because I am one of those people like Amelia's sister, like Emily, who loves to exercise and who very much feels uh, re-energized and refreshed after going to the gym. But maybe that's not the best way for you to complete the stress cycle. Instead, maybe you want to engage in some of the other activities that Amelia mentioned. So I'm thinking about um, affection. I'm thinking about even creative expression. I'm thinking about something they mentioned in the book was laughter, positive social interaction, or, you know, my favorite these days, if I'm quite honest, is just having a good cry. I never thought I'd be a crier, but crying really helps complete that stress cycle. Highly recommend. <laughs> wow. When I say I have recommended, but also purchased this book, for people I have and you know it was because a girlfriend of mine recommended this book and now look at me I'm recommending this book as well well let's just end on this positive note it's actually something um in the book um so this quote from the book says you deserve respect and love you deserve to be cherished you deserve kindness right now just as you are Oh, that is definitely a truth that sometimes I need to remind myself of. And look, there were so many gems in today's conversation. I was not joking when I said, oh my goodness, Amelia, like what you said um, was so affirming. 
people are going to re-listen to that clip and need to hear that and maybe even use that as their affirmation every single day um, because we need to to hear it. Um, and if that's you and you want to send this conversation to someone else, make sure you are subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you can listen to the replay, makes it easy to share with a friend. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I cannot wait until we are back together next Monday morning.